Chester. Ken loves talking about cars and automotive trends. And here he is, the automotive host with the most, Ken Chester. Welcome to Roadworthy Drive. I'm your host for the hour, Ken Chester. So glad you could join us. Keeping you up to date and well-informed is my destiny in life. So to that end, I have packed this hour full of information that you won't find anywhere else. From automotive news, odds and ends from the parts bin... To the main topics of the hour, you won't want to miss a moment. For those of you that desire to add your voice, comment, or question to the conversation, it's easy. Call or text me on the Roadworthy Drive line at 872-222-9793. If email is your preferred way to communicate, my address is ken at roadworthydrive.net. Please notice the change, and let me repeat that. It's ken at roadworthydrive.net. Either way is a great way to connect with me and the rest of the Roadworthy Drive crew. We'd love to hear from you. Now, before I introduce the other members of the crew in the studio, let me share what's on the plate for the rest of the hour. Car Wars, news from the production line, what's in, what's out, and what's coming. We are overdue for a flying car update, and I have news to share on that front. And then finally, you've heard about it, now we're going to talk about it. The launch of the Tesla Model Y SUV is not only a thing. Elon Musk is talking about launch dates. All that this hour. You see what I mean? Launch dates. Launch dates. Now, the Roadworthy Drive crew, as part of our pledge for safe operation at all times when the show is in operation, we are required to have a designated adult at the controls at all times. That individual is none other than my friend and Roadworthy Drive executive producer, Jack. And at mic number two, not snow, not ice, not the threat of wild animals in the middle of the road can keep her away, our sweet and sassy social media diva and gamer girl, Miss Sasha. Howdy, my peoples. Hi, Ken. Hey. Hello. Hey, I'm just saying, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thought threat of wild animals. Moosin. That would be don't, deer. Don't, don't, don't veer for deer is what the state says. Uh, just yeah. things. Oh, and last night I was going home. Uh-huh. And right down there, the curb by Waterworks Park. Right, mm-hmm. right. Six of them. Did you have to veer? Six deer. No. Did you veer? They were actually down in the valley down there. And all six of them were just standing there just looking around. Yeah, well, maybe they were like shopping it, or something. Like it was nothing. Okay, <laughs> sir, what is in the parts bin this week? J- just saying. Shopping for a new car? Could no. be. <laughs> no, or a new residence. Let's right. get to the parts bin, shall we? Uh, Nissan is using recycled leaf batteries to power streetlights. What? Really? Mm-hmm. Like on their um, on their uh, manufacturing compound or like no. in a certain city? or what Yeah, are they in doing? a certain city. Um, we talked about that there would be life for batteries after they were no longer suitable for cars. Correct. Right. This is one of those ways. They, they are to power streetlights that will make roads safer for vehicles and pedestrians. Their program is called the Light Reborn. It uses a solar panel that charges up a battery that can then power an LED at night with no, ex, no external connection required. And they are testing it in a Japanese city, uh, NAMI, that's M-A-M-I-E, Japan, 
actually a city that was actually abandoned after the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Oh. How ironic. Is that really irony, though? Can be. They plan to do a full-scale installation in the town later this year. Now, Nissan has been testing the idea of used leaf batteries for a while, kind of like the Tesla Powerwall-like. They've got a Tesla Powerwall program they call X-Storage. The idea of using batteries in an off-grid streetlight, however, is new and seems to be just the start of a new push into grid and off-grid storage. So, you know, there is life after batteries. There was a concern, what are you going to do with all these batteries? Is they're no longer used for cars? They could be repurposed. In fact, we reported, and Sasha, you kind of summed up that one fella who took the batteries and reconverted converted yes. a BMW. Yes. That was about yes. a year ago. About a year uh, ago. Yeah. Um, so this is the thing. Is this solar powered then? The solar power regenerates the batteries. Okay. Can then be used for LED lighting at night. Right. I get that. Okay. So, so kind of like what, what Tesla did in Western Australia. Yes. Uh, with the renewables, with solar and wind, mm-hmm. uh, their biggest problem was mitig- controlling the availability of power right. in the grid by using the batteries, the storage. That was the missing link that allowed them to control when it was available and have it even. So Nissan wants to take the, the street lights off of the grid and power them by battery so that if the grid goes down, you still have street lights. I don't know if it's what they want to do. I think that what they're showing is it's another application okay. that they can use. Um, batteries that are no longer fit for a car but mm-hmm. still have life can be repurposed. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, as we go forward and as the number of batteries grow as these cars get older and the batteries get changed out. Okay. Um, Renault even had something that they called uh, Smart Island. So the Nissan's Light Reborn is a small-scale test and a way to market its green credentials. So look out, Tesla. That's, that's a thing. Uh, while we're on the electric tip, how about this? UPS moves to using only electric vehicles in London. Okay, we talked a few months back about UPS going electric. Yeah, but here's the thing that makes it possible. They developed, they figured out uh, a radical electric vehicle charging smart grid, which solved the problem of needing to recharge a large number of vehicles simultaneously without having to pay for the expensive upgrade to the supply grid. Because if you recall, the biggest problem with with large-scale electric deployment was having having to invest money into building this big grid right. to recharge all these at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. They found a way to cut the cost big time. What are they doing? Um, well, it's, it's a new technology. As a result of the technology, UPS will now increase the number of electric trucks it has in operation in central London from 52 to 170 Whoa. in the next two years. They say going electric will, be soon, will soon be cheaper than diesel. Mm-hmm. Well, they're probably right about that. Yes. Can you imagine that? I can't Uh, wait for the long-term effects on that. Yeah, well, the whole thing is that the company's new intelligent charging technology works by spreading the same amount of electricity between vehicles more efficiently. Although they can all be plugged into the charging point simultaneously, a computer will stagger which vehicles charge when. So in the case of London, 
UPS was limited to a maximum of 65 vehicles because of the limits they had on how much electricity can flow into the charging depot and how much energy each car requires and the cost uh, of upgrading that. Okay. So, again, people, infrastructure, infrastructure. As we see more electric deployment, we're going to see breakthroughs in things like this that lower the cost, whether it's infrastructure or the battery itself. And there's more to talk about even that. They will say that investing in charging network technology that works is well. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. (laughs) Investing in charging network technology that works well is the holy grail at the moment without which a revolution in electric vehicles can't happen. Think about this. Imagine in situations, and Sasha and I have actually imagined about this, uh, where you can get vehicles that will recharge itself wirelessly as they move. It means, in that case, you would need smaller batteries. In the case of trucking, more you could haul more stuff. So it would overcome the offset of heavy batteries move heavy trucks because the batteries could be smaller, giving you more ability to haul more freight, which makes it more cost efficient. So this thing is coming. Um, In the time I got left before the break, let me hit you with this. Gas prices are going to $3 a gallon, people. Yes, they are. That doesn't surprise me because this week gas jumped 24 cents, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a a couple of things. The, the, the summer blends are more expensive to produce. Plus, you know those hurricanes they had down in the Gulf? Well, these guys have put off the maintenance. They're going to now take those plants offline to do the maintenance that was deferred and fix the damage that was going on down there. So these are going to push gas prices up. But guess what? If gas prices go up, guess what gets more affordable? Electric vehicles. Thank you. That's what I'm saying. Economics 101. When the cost of one thing goes up, the cost of substitutes become more economically feasible. I talked to three people in my neck of the woods. They're all for it. Mm-hmm. So they're expecting they're expecting a, a price increase by summer. But even then, it's still cheaper than it was even four or five years ago. Even in this state, I remember a high of 308. And our prices right now are nowhere near that. No. In, in our state, that, in that time frame, it was almost 350, 360. Yeah. So, you know... We, we will see these things happen, but with different results. When I return, car wars. And you're, it's not pretty. You're riding shotgun with Ken and Roadworthy Drive. This is Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Quite a sight to see Charlie Higgins coming up the road, carrying his champion hunting dog, Taters. She was about to have her first litter of pups, and Charlie was taking her to the vet when his truck broke down. I said, hop in. We'll get Taters there in plenty of time. We lit out across the country because it was closer. Well, sir, that international scout of mine performed like a champion, too. It's got the V8 engine, and she'll climb just about anything you aim her at. International Harvester makes those scouts rugged as a bear. 
I threw her an all-wheel drive, and we sailed through the bottom slick as a whistle. Well, Taters got to the vet on time, and I got one of her pups. And Charlie got a scout of his own. Ah, you never know what's going to happen out where I live. Right, Scout? If you're just joining us, welcome to Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. I miss those commercials. I really do. Uh-huh. I've got a question. Okay. How slick is a whistle? I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> For over 100 years, millions upon millions of dollars have been spent by automakers in the design, engineering, and manufacturing of vehicles intended to meet or satisfy a need in the marketplace for a specific vehicle and or design. From speed to comfort and functionality, history is littered with vehicles that have failed to hit the mark, sometimes with dire consequences for the company that produced them. The Big Three and Little Five have given way to what is sometimes referred to today as the Big Two and a Half. Automakers, in any case, the scramble is never ending, even today, as the world's automakers seek to reinvent the very concept of transportation. And I thought I'd share with you uh, during this segment a few of the recent winners and losers on the production and marketing front. And I'm going to start with this. Uh, Chevrolet is going to kill the Sonic Compact. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, I've been around that plant. That plant down one side under roof, 1.3 miles. That's a long distance. That is a lot of plant. Yeah, it is. Um, It's ironic because in that same plant, is the Chevrolet Bolt that's built there. So are they going to move the Bolt, too? No. The Bolt's going to stay put. They're just not going to build this anymore, uh, which is funny because the, 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 the Sonic came out in 2011 as kind of their answer to small cars, um, and it did well in 2014. They sold about 100,000 of them. Um, but last year, they only sold 30,000. I mean, that's not even enough to keep a plant running even at low speed. Wow. So that's the thing. Now, here's, here's something to consider. At that number, the plant makes one quarter of the number of vehicles that one of GM's truck plants make. Oh. And that doesn't, and that doesn't surprise me because trucks are selling. Ken, yep. You and I talked about earlier when we were off the air mm-hmm. about the fact that I'm seeing right now cars, sedans, whatever you want to call them, are they going to go away? Well— let me throw let me throw this hand grenade because okay. I, I want to throw this one. Now, the the piece that I'm talking about, which is out of the Wall Street Journal, talked about U.S. automakers have made money, and they all have the big three from trucks and SUVs, even to the point where Chrysler has really shrunk down to concentrate on their Ram pickups and their Jeeps. Now, they're looking at even getting rid of the cars they're building now, but a little history lesson. Chrysler should know better, and all I got to say is history, people. Let's go back to the late 1970s and early 1980s. They got caught up that way. They built vehicles back then that didn't get good gas mileage, and when the market went topsy-turvy, they got caught flat-footed. And, and really, it seems like they're in that same trouble again. Tw- even if the current EPA standards for 2025 are watered down or rolled back, Right. The 2022 standards are baked in. Those don't get – there's no option. And aren't we a third higher than we are right now? Roughly, yes. Okay. So there's still upward pressure on that. So I don't know what they're going to do. Now, you need to know that sedans, coupes, and other car categories still account for 37% of U.S. sales last year. Now, that's down 
from 51% in 2012, but that's still a sizable number. And, you know, you've got other automakers looking at uh, getting out of the car business. Uh, we reported here uh, before that GM was looking at dropping uh, the Chevy Impala. That nameplate's been around uh, uninterrupted for 61 years. Uh, the Fiesta is uh, going sayonara in a big way. Um, they're dropping that. And Ford is even thinking about dropping the Ford Fusion, which was their answer to the Honda Accord Toyota Camry. However, and this is something, the point I want to make, Nissan and Honda, and to even a lesser degree Toyota, have continued to spend money to keep their vehicles such as Civic and Accord and Altima fresh, even as uh, demand wanes. Nissan's pitch on that is they feel that there's going to be a backlash, and they, see, they claim to be seeing it, with the smaller crossovers and SUVs being the mom mobiles, which were yesterday's minivans that young people don't want to own. And they, they feel that by updating their car and the new generation Altima comes out for 2019, which has got all sorts of cool stuff, they anticipate that people will continue to gravitate back towards the car as they start to see a backlash against crossovers and SUVs. Okay, so my question is, if Nissan's seeing this, I don't think I think Ford and GM also have to take a look at okay, what do we have to do to get more people buying cars? Well, younger people buying cars. It, 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 it's a combination of things. It's not one thing. Um, sport utilities and compact utilities have utility, and they, they are a lot better. You have a higher view of the road. They're, you can do a lot more with them. Um, they look stylish, and they get better fuel economy than they used to. Sedans have been around for almost 100 years and uh, a little long in the tooth. We've seen minivans come and almost go. Uh, the minivan craze is GM doesn't make a minivan. That's right. Uh, Ford doesn't make one. Nope. Nope. Um, they used to. Yep. And they got out of that market. So we've seen it shrink. It hasn't totally disappeared because Honda still does, Toyota still does, Kia still does, Chrysler still does. Mm -hmm. But it's a lesser piece of their business than it used to be. It should be interesting to note that even though Nissan is bringing out a new Altima, their sales declined last year, 17% for the Altima. It's still pretty healthy. It's over 250,000 units, which ain't nothing to sneeze at. Oh, no, it's not. But that's down 17%. And in and what Nissan's saying, it's down 17%. That's for last year when they were in the last year of their current cycle, even though Honda and I believe uh, Toyota brought out new vehicles that year that they competed against. When you say bring out new vehicles, were they just freshening up ones they already have? Uh, they updated them. Okay. So it was more than just a model fresh. Typically what you see is a six-year cycle with a freshening in about three years. That could change depending on competition. Toyota did it with the Camry. They redesigned it in 2012. They freshened it early in 2014 because the design that came out was a little bit too stodgy and people weren't responding to it. And here's another thing Nissan's adding to their car, all-wheel drive. What? Yeah. The 2019 Altima will have all-wheel drive for the first time. So we'll see how that turns out. Next, your flying car update. I know you needed your fix. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is heard exclusively on the Roadworthy Drive radio network.
Drive with Ken Chester is America's premier automotive news and information talk show. This is the second half of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Ken Chester. For those of you that need or want more than your fair share of the road, be sure to check out the show website, roadworthydrive.com. Discover audio clips of past shows, watch video of our weekly behind-the-scenes activities in studio, as record the show each week, and more. The website is also a great place to discover where we are and what we are doing in the world of social media. Sasha is our resident social media diva, and she keeps things interesting and entertaining online between shows and with breaking automotive news and technology. See how she keeps the social in our social media. Now, before I cover the topic at hand, a special announcement for those of you that loves all sorts of vintage automotive literature, like brochures, magazines, repair manuals, and more. You're going to want to visit VintageAutomotiveMedia.com. Discover a vast collection of materials that you won't find anywhere else. Vintage Automotive has both an eBay store and an Amazon store so that you can patronize your favorite location. Other than the auction items offered from time to time in the eBay store, the inventory between eBay and Amazon is identical. Check out this quality seller and see for yourself. And that's VintageAutomotiveMedia.com. Flying Cars. Over the last several years, we've discussed this unique and growing part of the mobility landscape. And while we're not yet at the point of the Jetsons, we make progress day by day. And on that note, I thought it was time for your update because, you know, nice. Jack's just going to nice. fix. Nice. Love this, Jack. Now move along. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, how, about a, how about a flying sports car, Sasha? You ready for that? A flying... Okay, now, wait a second. If it's a sports car, how are we going to handle the uh, horsepower? Flying sports car. That's all I'm telling you. It's called... And wait a minute. You'll love the name. Okay. All right. The name of the sports car. Chariot. Switchblade. Shut up. Um, <laughs> wait a minute. They've got 600 people who have made reservations to buy one. When you say sports car... Right? Sports. Does, this, does this thing have a roof on it? Are there doors on this? Because how are you going to handle the wind velocity? Oh, flying. Okay. He just showed me the picture, folks. Flying sports car. Okay. The developers of the Switch Bay Flying Sports Car just reached reservation position 615. Um, they launched their reservation program at uh, the Sun and Fun event a couple of years ago uh, when they first gave people a first glimpse of the wing, swing wing mechanism for the flying and driving vehicle. Now, they believe that their vehicle's most popular feature, helping boost those reservation numbers, is that it may be seen as a truly practical flying car. Wait a minute. Practical and flying car. Those two don't mix. They say practical. They say, we've got customers from around the world, and many of us tell us the same thing, that this is the first flying car they could see using every day. They want to go fast save time, and avoid being stuck in traffic. And having their wings and tail safely protected while in driving mode is the big selling point. What okay. would Now, here's what they ask. What would define a practical car, a practical flying car? 
most pilots would cite having the flying surfaces protected while driving as any accidental bump could render the vehicle not flightworthy. Yeah, that's true. Worse, it might be damaged while parked without you even knowing it. Yep. And while no vehicle's completely accident-proof, the switchblade does protect the wings behind clamshell doors that close around the stowed wings to protect them from being damaged or tampered with while on the ground. Because nothing is worse than having your flight tampered with. Well, absolutely. And here's my other question. Mm-hmm. How high are they going to be able to fly this? They didn't say that, but I what's, will. What's the range? Uh, well, let me throw this at you. Now, they said the switchblade has outperformed everything in its wheelbase. Distance between front and rear wheels compared to road and track solemn course, historical database. And wait for it. It has the power to weight ratio of a 2017 Chevy Corvette, they say. Okay. But wait a minute. And, and this is something Sasha could afford. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anticipated price for one of these? Yes. $140,000. Done. <laughs> uh, Jack, that's actually somewhat affordable because it's one-half to one-fifth the cost of other flying cars as well as other small aircraft with similar capabilities. And it's electric. Uh, I didn't see that part. Okay, okay, because you you and I both know that my next vehicle will not be a combustion engine. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to quote what the guy said, and I, I, I'm i not making this up. Wow. Uh, the fella who is the aerospace engineer for Switchblade said, and I quote, mm-hmm. The era of the Jetsons will have finally arrived, and the world of aviation will undergo the same transition that the Internet generated in the 1990s. The technology of our time will finally be in the air at a price that is reasonable. Now. How many passengers is this? Two. Just the two. With the recent release of the PAL-V flying car at the Geneva Auto Show, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. And the announcement of production for the Terrafugia transition to begin next year in Massachusetts. And may I add that uh, the Terrafugia, the company that's going to make that. Yeah. Just got bought by Vol- the parent company of Volvo. What? Yeah. Last year we reported about it. That's here. right. We did. Yep. Yeah. Owned by Geely now. Geely. So it's a thing. Because was anybody ever in doubt that flying cars would be a thing eventually? Really? Yeah. Really? I, st- I still am. I still, really? I'm sorry. I hate to say this. <laughs> I agree with Jack. What? Yeah. I know. How did that happen? I know it's a thing. Well, uh, hang on. Yeah. Here's. Again, I'm going back to, yes, I'm going to sound like a curmudgeon. I'll admit that up front. (laughs) How are these things going to be able to interact with commercial aircraft? First of all, they're not going to fly that hijack. No physical way. Well, I understand that. But what comes up must must come come down. down. Well, these would be subject. First of all, you need a special flying license from the FAA. And we talked about that before. And this, this is no different. So you're actually going to have to be somewhat skilled. You're going to have to have a minimum of equipment. You're going to be limited in terms of height, distance, where you can. I'm sure they would make these off limits around airports and approaches and takeoff lanes for, for major airports. And here's, yeah. and, and here's my other question with that. Whenever the president shows up mm-hmm. and they close the airspace, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are they going to do with these things? If if, uh, if, if, I'm, answer- if I'm from out of state and I'm flying someplace and all of a sudden the president decides he's got to land here, okay, but- I don't I don't need an F-16 coming up to me <laughs> going, get down. Okay, number one, remember what I just said. It's not going to be near regular commercial airports 
or even military airports for that matter. Okay, but if I own a house close to the airport, I can't take off with this thing from my house. It depends. If your house happens to be in a flyway for takeoff or landing, probably not. Well, and and, and, and think about this. I'm going to interrupt Sasha for a minute. Uh, landing and taking off on a road? Yeah, there, there are going to be rules on these things. The other thing is, is that if we have, I mean, let's be honest, if and when this becomes a thing where we're talking about a more, then there's going to be some kind of communication module where you're going to be alerted as to where you are. Yeah, I will leave you with this. This PAL-V, they talked about the PAL-V Liberty, mm -hmm. which is another one of these, $399,000. Yeah. So 140 doesn't seem so bad. Finally, Tesla's Model Y SUV is about to become a thing. Really? This is Roadworthy Drive. You're tuned in to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. This is the last segment for this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ken Chester. We here at Roadworthy Drive don't necessarily consider ourselves devout followers of Elon Musk. Well, okay. What? Perhaps Sasha. Yes. I yes. digress. Well, Jack and I <laughs> are not devout followers. Preach it, brother. Come on. But I do admit to keeping tabs on what he's been up to, mm -hmm. especially in the automotive space. Mm -hmm. In the fog of Model 3 issues... The announcement of the Tesla Semi and the surprise reveal of an all-new Roadster is the Tesla Model I SUV. To be Model I or Model Y? Y. 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 Y, is in, y is in yes way. Okay. As opposed to no way. Uh, to be larger than the current Model X, we've been teased with its existence of this all-new and latest addition to the growing Tesla lineup. And I thought I'd share with what we know. Uh, which also includes, uh, from what I learned in my research, some conflicting information. Does like, not surprise me. Like, where is this puppy going to get built? Now, Ken, where is this going to get built? Now, according to Elon Musk, in Fremont. There's no way. I about to say, isn't he building everything else in Fremont? Uh, yeah. Where is he building the semi? Uh, who knows? They didn't announce that. Oh, it's at an undisclosed location. Kind of uh, like where I was last week. Aha. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 But no, no, that was Sashaville. <laughs> um, no, her palatial estate. Yeah, in Sashaville. Right. right. Now, this man expects to build at full production a million of them a year. And you, I okay. Now wait a minute. He can't get the model three out fast enough. Wait, wait, wait. wait Thank wait. you. I think we all could come to grips and understand that Elon Musk, when he sets a date and when he says that something's going to be there by this time, that he, you know, makes that mark every single time. No, he doesn't. No, he has what? not. Not with the nah. model three. Okay. He hasn't. okay. Let's let's first back up. <laughs> all right. They're talking about starting production in about a year and a half. Okay. They're going to add a production site in China two years after that. Now, here's my problem. Your average American full-blown automaker's been in business for almost 100 years assembly plant builds straight time, and that's usually six days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day. 
250,000 units. Now, automakers have squazed more production out of their plants. Hyundai squazed as much as 330,000 units out of an assembly plant. Now, that's a year, correct? That's a year. Right. Now, a million a year out of one plant? Not happening. Would make it the world's largest automobile assembly plant. Right now, the world's largest plant, and I've seen it, is Volkswagen's plant in Wolfsburg, Germany, and it is ginormous. Okay. To give you an idea how many vehicles that thing builds, and I'm going to see if I can find the number because I looked at it, and how many things, how many vehicles a day that that thing builds. Uh, but in the meanwhile, there's, there's a lot of inconsistency, surprise, surprise, right. on what this thing is going to happen. And is, Fremont ain't going to be able to do it unless a major expansion. But you still have a problem there because of uh, supply chain issues, and you'd have to dramatically enlarge the place. Okay, hang on. Dramatically. Where exactly in California is Fremont? You had to ask me that. And, and I, to be honest with you, offhand, I don't know. Okay, well, we can look that up for another yeah, show. Yeah, we can look that yeah. up. But, well, but I guess what my question is, if we're talking logistics to get things there, is the majority of the stuff coming there by truck? By train? Yes and yes. Okay. But, it's, but, the, but you're missing the point. The point is, you still need, if you're going to build that kind of volume, mm-hmm. one, you're not doing that in one plant. There's no. not an automaker on the planet that builds that kind of volume in one assembly plant. None of them. Not GM, not Toyota, not Mazda, not nobody. And why wouldn't you build a plant someplace where you're near water? Not necessarily. That could present its own problem. Well, I realize that presents its own problem. But Depending if on where you're, but, but getting. If you're getting some supplies from China, it's normally coming by boat. But we don't know they're coming from China. Here's the bigger problem. Obviously, that the electric engines that are going to power these things are going to come from the Gigafactory in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, does the Gigafactory have the capacity to ramp up on top of everything else it's building? To build these. And I would assume the answer to that is no, because right now they're having all they can handle with building what he's already got. Let me put this in perspective for you. Toyota and Mazda announced a joint plant. Mm-hmm. They're going to be online in 2021. These are, these are two companies together that have been doing this for many years. They got it down. And they're building near their existing supplier base. So they've got a pool of experienced people that can hit the ground running, and it's still going to take them three years yep. to do it. And these are people that, one, are near supplier plants, are near their existing supplier base, that has a, a, a group of expertise across the spectrum yep. nearby, and it's going to take them three years. Mm-hmm. Okay, Elon, wherever he puts this thing, doesn't have any of that. I'm going to let that settle. And he thinks he's going to be in production in a year and a half. Tooling takes longer than that. Mm-hmm. If you're going to build those kind of things, usually what automakers do, they will freeze it, what they call freeze a design. What that means is in order to build and release contracts to the suppliers to provide all the parts that will build it, this, the design gets frozen. In other words, beyond this point, this is it. This is what we're going with. We freeze the design. To build over 100,000 units. If you're going to stamp metal, you need what they call a hard die. That hard die takes one year to make. 
Now, you can get soft dyes in less time, but if you're going to build a dye that's going to be stamping at that volume or it's dyes. Gotta, it's got to be a hard dye, right? It, yes, sir, and it takes one year to make them. That's just the dye. We haven't uh-huh. talked about the handling. We haven't talked about the logistics. We haven't talked about anything else. Logistically, you're talking about a, a logistical nightmare. Not to mention, let's get base. What about the employees that you would need for the line if the line even exists, which it would have to be under construction right now? Yeah, it would have to be. And you would still, or to be honest, he should have broke ground maybe a year and a half ago. Again, I bring you back to Toyota Mazda. Two companies have been doing this. Between them, they build 12 million cars a year across the, around the world. Mazda's four plants clustered together build a few million cars a year, but that's four assembly plants clustered. Toyota City builds a lot of vehicles, but again, a number of assembly plants clustered together. Mm-hmm. So while he's talking about November 2019 as job one, I don't see it. Uh, money, uh, suppliers, body and white, which he's taking that shortcut again. Oh, well. Well, folks, that kind of wraps up the end of this hour. On behalf of the Roadworthy Drive crew, thank you for listening. This has been Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.